I don't know how many of you have ever um, gone online shopping, looking for something and found uh, what you think is a great bargain. And uh, so you, you kind of jump at it, you look, that's amazing, and you kind of click the, the buy button, um, and then you get the email which tells you it's going to be like a three to four week delivery date uh, from there because it's coming from somewhere like China um, or somewhere like that. And, and so you kind of wait patiently with a little bit of trepidation because, uh, you know, you're not quite sure what you're going to get. And it arrives through the door um, and the quality isn't exactly what you were expecting. Um, anybody been there? I've certainly been burned by that a few times. Um, live and learn, eh? Well, you know, it's quite amazing, um, really, the kind of imitations that are out there and the different things that, that you can buy. So I'm going to show you a few that I found online. So here's the first one. This is Robert Cop 2. And um, I don't know if you can read it, but it's described as the furniture of law enforcement. No idea what that, that means, really. If we go on to, to the next one for you Star Wars fans, here are a few toys from episode one. We've got the Emperor Daft Sirius. Um, we have a young Anakin Skywalker being sold as the little girl. Um, and my personal favorite is the fearsome Darth Maul. We find out his real name is Dennis. In more recent years, we've got the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'm sure lots of you are excited for the next Avengers film. I've got a bit of a spoiler for you if we go on to the next one. Who expected Buzz Lightyear in there? Uh, It's not just all about toys, though. Um, If you want to go shopping and get kind of the latest designs and the latest fashions, did you know you can also go to Dolce & Banana? And when you need to stop and kind of have a coffee and refresh yourself after that shopping trip, you can go to the nation's favorite sunbooks. Sunbooks. You know, these are all imitations of the real thing, aren't they? And um, and where there may be be flaws and imperfections uh, in different kind of ways, legally these things may be a little bit dubious. Um, but essentially, someone has seen the original and they've set out to try and make something as close to the original as they can. To, to be as, make as good a copy as is possible for them to do. Something that's recognizable to us because it looks like and reflects the thing that they started with. And today, as we come back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we're going to be looking at how Paul talks about how in a similar way we are to aspire to be imitations, to be imitators of God. How we were designed to try and imitate and be as close as possible to our original. Even if sometimes we still have some flaws and imperfections. This is what Paul writes in Ephesians 5 verse 1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And when it comes to an original that we're to aspire to imitate, that sets a pretty high bar, doesn't it? That our lives, that what we do and say, that the way we live, that the attitudes that we have would reflect something of who God is, that people would look at us and while there might be flaws and imperfections, they would recognize the original that we come from. Um, there was a craze, those of you who have been around in church for, for a, a good few years, there was a craze back in the 90s of these bracelets that people would wear with WWJD. Uh, and the, the whole kind of idea behind it was that we ask ourselves the question, what would Jesus do? Or what would Jesus say? 
How would God react in this situation? What would God feel? What would he think? And those kind of questions come from a motivation that understands that we are designed and called to be imitators of God. That when we become Christians, we don't just get this kind of ticket to heaven, but that God begins a process and a work within our lives to transform us to become more and more like Jesus. And as we go on to, to, to read about what this looks like and, and how we can kind of live this out, what Paul says in these verses is direct and blunt and challenging. And when you read it on its own and you just kind of take these verses on their own without anything else which goes on around it, you can end up feeling a little bit beaten up. Just a list of do's and don'ts and how you kind of match up or don't match up. You can end up in a place where you just end up trying to be pretty religious. But you know, this isn't the starting point for Paul. What he writes here comes after he's just spent the rest of this letter to, to the Ephesians. These first few chapters wanting to help us to understand how much God loves us. Wanting to help us to understand how when we give our lives to Jesus, he forgives us and makes us new. There is this transformation that instantly takes place inside of us. How we become children of God who are accepted and belong. How we receive the Holy Spirit to empower us and enable us and to be with us and to comfort us and guide us and strengthen us. How we have a hope which is secure and certain and not based on us trying to live good enough lives, but it's based on what Jesus has done that we can hold on to. That's the hope that we have. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, it's the hope that is available to you. And so having received all of this with an understanding and an experience in our lives of all that God has done for us, Paul says, therefore, As beloved children, now live a life that reflects something of who God is. Be imitators of God. But as I said, when we think about what it means to be imitators of God, it sets a pretty high bar. It's a pretty high standard. And so this is challenging. And it will be challenging for each one of us in different ways and with different things. But I want to encourage you as we go through these verses to simply have an open heart. An open heart to what God is wanting to say. An open heart to what the Holy Spirit is wanting to show you. Knowing that he loves you. That he is for you. And that his desire is to see God at work setting you free. That you would experience his love and his blessing in your life in an ever greater way. So, let's just, let me just pray. And let's just posture our hearts, ready to receive what God wants to say. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the fact that our relationship with you, our hope in you, isn't based on who we are and trying to live up to certain things. It's based on who you are and what you've done. That you accept us as we are with all our flaws and imperfections. But Jesus, thank you that you love us too much to leave us that way. And that your heart and your desire is to set us free, to help us to grow, that we would look more and more like you. And Jesus, I pray that today as we look through your word, that you would help us to hear every part of it. 
knowing it comes from the mouth of a heavenly Father who loves us and is for us and wants what's best for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Brilliant. So, when it comes to being imitators of God, here's the first thing that I think that we're called to do. Number one, assess our attitude. Um, Paul writes this in, um, I think it's verse 2 of um, Ephesians 5. He says, And walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When you assess your attitude, are you walking in love? And the idea of walking in love... It can be pretty challenging even when we have an understanding of love that kind of comes from just a regular kind of understanding of love that we just find in the world everywhere. But the kind of love that we are called to is the love that, that God shows us as in Jesus he willingly sacrifices his own life. He puts our needs ahead of his comfort even when it costs him so much. And if we are to imitate God and to follow his example, then we are called to have this attitude of self-sacrificial love. So when you think about your relationships, ask yourself, do I have an attitude of of self-importance and put myself first? Am I upset and offended when other people don't do the things that I want them to do or think they should do? Or do I have an attitude of self-sacrifice and put others first? In my relationship with God, who comes first? And these are big questions. The good news is that While self-sacrifice is hard, God promises us that actually through it we find a blessing. You know, he he says that the the way his kingdom works is upside down, that the first will be last and the last will be first. And, you know, I've, I've seen this in my own life. You know, there are times when I'm tired and I'm worn out and being completely honest, the last thing that I want to do is come out and lead a meeting. There are times when the last thing that really I want to do is, is to have to go out and spend time with someone and hear about all of their struggles and try and care for them in the midst of it. Just being real. But you know, so often in those times when I make that choice to say, actually, you know what, I love God so much that I want to be there at that meeting, or I love that other person so much that I want to be there for them in that time, that I come away from that, not only having seen God at work in them, but being encouraged in myself, and having been experienced something of God's at work in me, and blessing me in the midst of that. And I end up leaving so pleased that I made the effort. You know, when we have an attitude of self-sacrificial love, not only do we reflect something of who God is, but God works in our lives to bless us in amazing ways. Ways that we'll never get to experience or know without that attitude. So, first thing, assess our attitude. The second thing that I think that we're called to do 
is protect our purity. This is what Paul goes on to write, because you see the amazing God that we're called to imitate isn't just this wonderful God of love who we celebrate, but he is holy and pure and righteous. There isn't a single imperfection in him. So as I say, this is what Paul goes on to write. He's reading on from verse 3. It says, But among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. This is why it is said, Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You know, Paul gives us this whole kind of list of things that we're to stay clear of. In fact, he says, among you who are called to imitate God, to imitate Jesus, there shouldn't even be a hint of these things. And the first thing that Paul tells us to avoid is sexual immorality. And the Greek word that is used here is the word porneia, which is from where we get the word pornography. But actually, it's, it's a word which is originally summed up so much more than just that one thing. It really essentially refers to any and every kind of sexual activity outside of marriage. Whether that's pornography or adultery or sex before marriage or, or whatever else. And, and I'm fully aware that, that not everyone in this room is a Christian. And I'm fully aware that the idea of saving sex until marriage is not a popular one in our culture. And it's not the most popular part of what the Bible teaches. You know, most people, if they come and they read the Bible and they read about loving one another and forgiving one another and the way that we put each other first, people kind of relate to that and they get that and they can see as that as something to aspire to. But teaching on sexual morality in the Bible kind of flies in the face of our culture. And one of the biggest questions that people ask when it comes to the idea of saving yourself until marriage is, is why is God so restrictive? Why does God want to limit us so much? What's so bad about sex? And you know, it's not like that at all. You know, as far as God is concerned and as far as the Bible is concerned and teaches us, sex is great. God is the author and the creator of sex. And he knows that it's good. But he also knows that it's precious and it's powerful. 
And he gave us the gift of sex, not just so that we were able to kind of procreate and to have children, but he gave us the gift of sex because it unites and draws together and brings a special bond between a man and a woman that nothing else can. And when you have sex with someone, you are saying, I'm committed to you, and I want to join myself to you, and we will be one flesh for the rest of our lives. There is a joining together that happens beyond the physical, as two become one. And when we join ourselves to someone lightly, and then we pull ourselves apart, there is always damage and pain. And when we engage in, in sexual activity without another person, like with pornography, there might not be that joining together with somebody physically, but we're doing the same thing within our hearts. And it causes us damage and pain. And when God tells us that sex is designed exclusively for the context of marriage, he isn't trying to spoil our fun. He tells us because he loves us, and he knows that actually that this is where we can enjoy sex in the way that it was always intended. And that all of the other types of sexual activity will only result in brokenness and shame and struggle. And living in a world where this flies so much in the face of our culture, I can guarantee that there are people in this room who have struggled in this area in the past, and I may be struggling in this area right now. And what can happen is that our struggles in this area can leave us feeling like damaged goods. And that feeling makes us pull away from God. And actually so often it ends up driving us back to the same sexual activity again and again all the more easily, hoping that somehow it will fill that hole and it will be better next time. You know, and the amazing news that we find all through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, all through the, the Bible, is that purity isn't something that we earn. Purity is something that we are given by God. The moment that we turn to Jesus, no matter what we've done in the past, no matter what it is that we've been struggling with, no, the moment that we turn to Jesus, God declares us to be pure. And this is something that we can have restored to us and given to us again and again every time we come back to Jesus. And so if, as I talk about this, you are experiencing any kind of sense of shame or guilt or dark feelings that are kind of pulling you down, I want you to know that that is not God's heart for you, and that is not Him speaking to you. That is not the work of the Holy Spirit. He might put His finger on something and convict you and make you really aware that it's a bad idea and you shouldn't be doing it, but He does that in order to draw you close to Him, never to push you away. He does that out of love for you because he, doesn't, because he wants to break this cycle of brokenness, break this cycle of shame. And as you look to him, you can have your purity restored. And our job after that is simply to follow God's directions to protect 
our purity. Purity that we've not earned, that we don't deserve, but purity that we've been given. We are called to a radical lifestyle as we no longer imitate the world. We no longer imitate the other people around us and the values of the world. But instead, we become imitators of God. And Paul warns us to be on guard in this. To not let people deceive us with empty words. To not be deceived by our own hearts or deceived by the enemy as he comes in and he kind of whispers to us. It's no big deal. Come on, no one's going to get hurt. You've done it before. What's the problem with doing it again? Everyone's doing it. Paul says, do not be deceived. Do not compromise on God's standards in order to fit in with the world that you're living in. Thankfully, Paul doesn't just highlight the things that we need to avoid. He gives us some great practical advice about how we can be proactive in protecting our purity. And as you you read through these verses, it's, it's... You know, this isn't just to do with with sexual activity. That's what I've kind of focused on. But as you read through these verses, you know, Paul makes it pretty clear. This is broad. This is everything which goes against imitating God. This can be expressed through our greed and the way that we're we're driven to want things that we don't have and to find ways to try and take hold of them. This is things like our our kind of uh, foolish talk and coarse joking. This is things like sexual innuendo in our conversations. This is the the, the things where we allow our conversations to be, be shaped by and filled with filthy talk rather than God's purity. But he then goes on and he says some great practical advice about how to protect your purity and to live a life that reflects something of who God is. Because how many of you know that you've never accidentally done what's right? You know, we accidentally and without meaning to find ourselves kind of drifting and end up doing things which we never meant to do and end up making a mess and mistakes and problems. That happens without a lot of effort. But if our lives are to be pure and reflect who God is, it won't happen by accident. We need to be intentional and proactive. And so the first bit of practical advice that I want to pull out from what Paul writes here is to ask yourself, where do I draw the line? You see, if we're going to be intentional about living lives of of purity then we need to decide in advance where our lines are going to be drawn. We, what it is that we believe to be acceptable and what isn't. And Paul gives us some advice in this when he says that there should not be even a hint of these things. You know, in my experience, most of us who don't fall into serious sexual immorality or compromise in in different areas of our lives because we wake up one morning and just decide, I'm going to go off and have an affair. Or we wake up one morning and decide, you know what, today I just want to have a crude joke in every conversation. Or today I just want to try and manipulate people to get as much as I can have. No, we get that by taking one little step at a time. We get there because we started entertaining a hint of it. 
and then it grew. And so we have to ask the question, where do we draw our lines? And when it comes to working out where we draw our lines, I think we can get hold of something of what what Paul says in verse 10, where he says, find out what pleases the Lord. And so the idea here is that we don't just go through life and kind of see what happens in the day and, um, you know, whatever it is we face, we'll just kind of make a decision based on how we feel about it at the time. That's when we do things accidentally. But that we proactively, in advance, find out what pleases God. Find out what it is that, that it looks like to live a life that imitates something of who he is. A life that God would describe as pure. And imagine if, if the area where I was standing at the moment, if we, let's say the stage here kind of represents a lifestyle that pleases God. And, and down on the floor, nothing against you guys, you just happen to be on the floor. But down on the floor, we'll say, just kind of represents that, that life of immorality and impurity and all those different kind of things which, which go against God. Where do I draw my line? Is it wise for me to, to kind of stay on the stage but, but kind of decide I'm just going to walk along the edge and kind of hope for the best and then at that moment when I kind of teeter, hope I don't fall? Is it wise for me to try and kind of have a, a foot in both camps and kind of be half on and, and half off and kind of live in both ways. And I want to keep hold of God and his blessings and know that he's got this kind of hope, but really I don't want to let go of, of the rest of the, I don't want to let go of what's going on in the world. Because when we do that in effect, what our lifestyle demonstrates is that the way we're living asks the question, not what pleases the Lord, but how much can I get away with? And when we walk close to the edge and we have a foot in both camps, when we allow sexual immorality or a hint of greed or impurity of any kind, we teeter on the edge and it is only a matter of time before we fall. And so as you think about this question, where do I draw my lines? This means asking yourself the question, what pleases God? And how can I be wise in terms of the TV that I watch, the internet sites that I visit, the places I go, the people that I surround myself with? Where I, how I allow myself to be and interact with my colleagues. And it will look different for every single one of us. But the point is the same. If we don't intentionally and proactively ask the question, what pleases the Lord, and draw our lines in wise places, we will fall off the edge. And if you know you've already kind of crossed that line, that you're already addicted to pornography, or you've developed this kind of flirtatious relationship with a colleague at work and Maybe you've started to even think about or to act on more than that. Or you've been greedy and you've been overcharging people for the work that you've been doing. Or you just know that you enjoy joining in with crude conversation. 
and now is the time to repent. To recognize that what you've been doing is, is wrong and to come back to the right side of the light. To come out of darkness and into light. Knowing that in that moment as you look to Jesus, you don't have to try and work your way back to purity, but he gives you purity as a gift. That brings me to the second bit of practical advice that I want to pull out of these verses, which is to ask yourself, am I walking in the light? You know, I know from my own personal experience and from chatting to others that when we make a mess of things, when we make mistakes, and when we find ourselves caught and trapped in cycles of behavior that we know we are are wrong, we end up feeling ashamed. And our instinct is to try and hide it from everybody and to keep it in the dark. The problem is that when we keep these things in the dark, they have a hold on us and a grip on us. When we keep things in the dark, it allows that, even that, that, the shame and the guilt to kind of cripple us. And the way that we bring these things into to the light, the way that we, we as we, they are brought into the light, the power of sin, both in the activity and in the, 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 the brokenness and the guilt is broken is by simply being honest with and talking to God and honest with and talking to other Christians about our sins and about our struggles. We say, here's what's going on. Here's where I'm struggling. Here's, here's my, the mess that I've, I've made. I don't want to hide it anymore and pretend it's not there and keep it in the dark I want to bring it into the light because I know I need help. I need support. I need accountability. You know, I, I love my, uh, my momentum group and um, the guys that, you know, we, we don't meet up as regularly as we might, but I love the fact that I, they're there. I love the fact that when we get together, I can be honest and real with them and they can be honest and real with me. And I love the fact that I have been privileged to have friends like that in my life for the last almost 20 years. And as we expose things to the light, it's a massive step to us coming free and to us overcoming in that area. But not only does Paul say that as we bring things into to the light, they're exposed so that we can kind of deal with it, but he says that as they're illuminated, we start to shine. And actually, as we bring things into the light, it puts us in a position where we're then able to help other people who are struggling in that area. And it is such a, such a joy to have people who I can share with, but also when people come and, and share with me. And when people are honest with you, when people make themselves vulnerable with you, we all fear that what's everybody going to react? How is it going to be? And I've never known anyone in that moment to be judgmental. Every time I've been honest with someone, every time someone has been honest with me, what I've experienced is a heart moved with compassion and love. A heart that is moved to be for me and to stand with me and to celebrate the fact that I've had the courage to be honest about it. 
heart that is moved to stand with me, to help me keep going, and to protect my purity. And so I want to ask you to, to ask yourself, who have you got in your life? I'm not talking about everybody, some wise, but who have you got in your life? Who you can be honest with and real with and you can bring things into the light knowing that they love you, knowing that they're for you, knowing that you can trust them. That they will help you to protect your purity. And as you do that, it breaks the power of sin and it breaks the power of guilt and shame and condemnation because God's light and truth And love is able to shine into that area of your life. So Paul says, if we are going to be imitators of God, then we need to assess our attitude and protect our purity. And then finally, we need to be filled with the Spirit. Paul writes this. These are the last verses, and we won't take so long. But uh, here he goes, verses 18 to 20. He says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul here, obviously, directly addresses getting drunk. But what Paul is really talking about here, I think, applies to anything that we can fill our lives with and allow to have an influence over us. Anything that stops us and holds us back from wise living, from living in the light as imitators of God. You know, the way that we live is shaped by what we fill ourselves with. You know, we all know that, you know, whether by experience or watching others, we all know that if we're drunk, we're going to end up making bad decisions. And that it's just not a good idea. It leads to foolishness. You know, we know that the same can be said for getting high. But, you know, actually, there are so many other things that we can fill our lives with that can influence us and lead us to debauchery or lead us to foolish decision-making And living a life with an an attitude that doesn't honor God. You know, the things that we look at, the places we go, the people we surround ourselves with influence us in different ways. And these can all be things that we end up looking to when we face problems. And it's just an amazing irony, isn't it? We, we, I've seen it time and time again. I've, I've lived it time and time again. In that, that, that time where you, you think you're going to have some fun, so you go out and you drink, and then you make bad decisions because you, of the, the drink that you had, and then you end up with the problems, and so to try and escape from the problems, you go back to the drink. It's madness, isn't it? And yet we all do it. We try to escape our problems and drown them out by filling our lives with different things that just lead us in the wrong direction yet again. We escape our problems by turning to the bottle or to pills or the TV or the fridge or another person. And Paul is saying, don't fill your life with things that lead to problems And then turn to those same things again to try and escape those problems. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Turn to the Holy Spirit. Be set free from and overcome your problems by filling your life with the power and the presence of God. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. And and being filled with the Holy Spirit isn't an optional extra. This is what we're called to as, as God's people. To let the Holy Spirit be the one who influences us and shapes us and leads us and guides us and directs our attitudes and our thinking and our perspective. You know, it's through the, the, the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that we are enabled to, to overcome in the areas that we might struggle with on our own. That we're enabled to, to come free and to, to be imitators of God. On our own, we don't stand a chance. I don't stand a chance. But whatever God asks us to do, even when he sets the bar so high as saying, be an imitator of me, whatever he asks us to do, he equips us for himself. And what Paul writes doesn't just convey the idea of this being something that happens as a one-off back when you become a Christian, when you start out on your journey of following Jesus. But he talks about being continuously filled with the Holy Spirit in an ongoing kind of way. And sometimes people get hung up on this idea and say, why is it uh, that we, we kind of pray, come Holy Spirit, when Jesus has told us that the Holy Spirit already lives in us? And how does all of this kind of work and, and fit together? Well, I think maybe to help start to understand what Paul is talking about here, we can, we can do that through the imagery of sailing. You know, let's say the wind is blowing. And, and you've got a boat out on the lake. And the boat is going to struggle to make progress anywhere fast unless it puts its sail up. And once the sail goes up, the sail is filled and the boat starts to, to move rapidly and is propelled along with this amazing power. And as people who follow Jesus, it's like when we're walking in sin, when we're, we're walking in foolishness, when we're, we're simply walking in a way where we're relying on ourselves, trying to be independent without coming to God for help and asking him to fill us again. We're like a boat with our sails down. The Holy Spirit is still with us. He lives in us. He never leaves us. He's still blowing. He's still at work. But we're not moving very far, very fast. We're not experiencing his power at work in our lives because our sail's down. And when we ask the Holy Spirit to, to come, we're not trying to persuade or beg the Holy Spirit to turn up because he wasn't here before. He's here always. But we do need to purposefully put ourselves up, to set our hearts right, to invite the Holy Spirit to, to, to come in a sense of saying, here's my sail, come and fill it. You're blowing already, but I need you. Come and work in my life. And every time we do that, every time we raise our sails, we are filled with the power and the presence of God to enable us to be imitators of God. And when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, our hearts are filled with joy and praise and thanks and hope. 
And do you know that all helps us in this fight against sin? In this fight against all the things that, that pull us towards living in impure ways and compromising. You know, what drives us is so often a sense of dissatisfaction and a hoping for and a looking for a fix. And when our hearts are filled and when we commit ourselves to the choice of thankfulness, it's very hard to stay dissatisfied. If you've got a a thankfulness to God for the spouse that you have, it's very hard to start looking at somebody else and go off and commit adultery. If you've got a thankfulness for the things that God has given you, it's very hard for, for greed to begin to come up as you start looking for and chasing after the things that you don't have. There is amazing power in thankfulness, and that thankfulness comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. So as we finish, we're going to come to communion, and you know, communion is a time of thankfulness, isn't it? It's a time when in all the midst of all the things that we've been talking about, we can celebrate and rejoice the fact that our purity isn't based on who we are, but on what Jesus has done.